Hello, hello, and welcome to My Tennis Journey, where we aim to bring compelling tennis stories to life. As you're listening today, it'd be amazing if you could hit subscribe or follow. It's free, you know. Now, the thing I'm really uh, excited about, about today's guest, is that he is as passionate as I am, perhaps more so, about three of my favourite things in the whole wide world. We're talking tennis, football and music. When I started to research today's guest, I just couldn't believe how much he's done. Roy Turnham was registered blind from birth, yet a look at what he's achieved demonstrates he's never let his sight hold him back. He's won gold at the World Junior Blind Cross Country Championships. He's represented Great Britain at London 2012 Paralympics in the blind football team. He's won the national singles and doubles championships in the GB National Visually Impaired Tennis Championships. He's toured with the fantastic Liverpool band She Drew the Gun. I really could go on and on. There's so much to talk about. Welcome to the show, Roy Turnham. Hi there. Thanks for having me on. Much appreciated. Hey, it's an absolute pleasure, Roy. I mean, you know, you, you've excelled at multiple sports. I mentioned some of them in the, the introduction. How did your sporting journey start? And, you know, which which sports were you, were you playing as a lad? I suppose my sporting journey really started with a lot of curiosity and just a willingness to give things a try. You know, I, I didn't sort of go into a lot of things sort of thinking straight away, I want to do these things because I want to be exceptional at them or anything like that I just you know I was just a bright-eyed kid who just just wanted to try things I was very grateful and very fortunate to have um, parents and a support network around me that really facilitated that and allowed me to kind of grow my passion and find out for myself the things that I really wanted to to you know continue with and, and enjoy doing isn't it true that behind kind of every sporting journey, even like when you were junior, there's a support network and, and very often it is the parents or it's somebody that's helped out. Without it, that journey doesn't start, does it? Absolutely. And, you know, let's be honest, I would say, you know, there's a lot of people who've come into their sort of sports journey and it's been very unconventional. You know, maybe they haven't had the sort of, you know, the, the stereotypical support network, but there's always someone or some people who've helped us, who've kind of helped to light that fire, um, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's coaches they've met, um, whether it is parents, whether it's teachers, um, there's always people there. And, you, and whenever you are in that position, that privileged position of being a, an athlete, a high-performance athlete, You've all, you always look back on those things or you should always look back on those people, you know, just basically remember your roots, you know, remember those people, you know, because you, I know that I wouldn't be in the position that I'm in now without those, um, you know, without the, some amazing people that I've met throughout my life. And I mean, you know, in terms of igniting that fire, um, you know, your, your mum's blind, your dad's partially blind they must have been so determined to give you and your brother and sister just as many opportunities as, as anyone else because of, you know, what you've gone on to achieve. But how did they actually make that happen? So, 
I guess some of it I've learned retrospectively. I think when you were kids, I think one of the biggest things that they did was they protected us from the difficult things like, you know, the, the certain challenges that they were experiencing at the time, you know, questions about whether we should be doing certain things and that obviously they dealt with, um, which allowed us to kind of go out and do the things that they knew that we were capable of doing. Um, so my, my parents at the time when they were, when they met, when they were younger, they were, they was, there was only for, for visually impaired people is very much, um, going to blind schools and blind colleges, you know, schools specifically for people with a visual impairment. Um, but when the opportunity arose, um, when my older brother was, was a child, to actually start integrating into mainstream education, they were really, really keen and determined that myself, my brother and my sister were going to make the best of that environment. Um, I honestly believe that if I hadn't had such a, a wide ranging upbringing, you know, going to a comprehensive school where I was around people, not just people with a visual impairment, but just, just people from all walks of life, you know, all different backgrounds. And that really helped to ignite my sort of passion for so many different things. And it, and socially as well, you know, it, it helped me to create friendship groups, you know, and, and meet so many different people um, along the way. And, independence they're so passionate about our in, our own independence and you know it's very it was very good for us because because growing up all three of us my younger sister myself my older brother you know we we had these incredible role models who we would go home to every day who would take us who would do the same things with us as what sighted parents would do you know my it, it, you know it may sound a bit a bit conventional a bit stereotypical but in terms of skills that were involved, you know, my my mum at the time when I was younger, she had a part time job, but she, you know, she cooked everything from scratch, you know. So I would go home and, you know, my mum would be, you know, as easy as, as at ease around the around the kitchen and around, you know, doing things that other parents were doing. Um, in fact, even more so, you know, my, my friends used to love my mum's cooking and everything she did was from scratch. And, you know, people are, people may worry about thing, even things like chopping vegetables. You know, she just did. I saw my mum, who was totally blind, doing all those sorts of things that maybe other people would sort of think, oh, that's too scary to do when you're blind. You know, I, I saw all those things happening. I saw my mum and my dad both going out and working. I saw them um, doing, you know, going on public transport, um, using yeah. a you know, using a cane, white cane, you know, my older brother um, would, they would trust my older brother, who's also totally blind, to take me swimming, you know, and we would go out together using our, using our canes. And obviously I got very competitive and I wanted to be a better white cane user than my brother. <laughs> you know, so I had these incredible positive role models all around me growing up. And I suppose that was kind of, that planted those seeds for being able to go on and sort of do the things that, you know, I wanted to do. It's so inspiring. I'm guessing that attitude, that approach fed into the sports that you first got involved in. Yeah. So basically, um, I was, I guess I was kind of drifting a little bit. I'd, I'd gotten into music in a big way. And I was, it was in, within my sort of my second year of secondary school. It's quite a, 
it's quite a pivotal age really because you're at that stage where you're kind of questioning things you're quite frustrated you don't know what you're gonna what you want to be really and um I hated cross-country running with an absolute passion (laughs) (laughs) I just hated the way it felt and um I was fortunate in that um I was in PE and they used to um, find a, um, a support worker to work with me in PE to make sure that if we, if I was ru- if we were running cross country, running out on the roads or anything like that, um, someone who could guide me um, or could show me one to one, you know, different techniques if we were doing throwing or um, jumping or anything like that. And it just so happened that in the school there was a young um, a young teacher called Nigel, who was actually an avid. Uh, runner himself he was he was quite good ran 5ks and 10ks and he was the most wonderful crazy um active just just lo- just a lovely person to be around and his enthusiasm and his the sort of sense of fun that he always seemed to have it just wore off on me and he ended up guide running me for when you mentioned earlier about winning the world junior cross country championships Fast forward two or three years, I, I I was obsessed with running. You know, I used to go with, we used to run together, not just in PE lessons, but I, I we would run at lunch times, we'd run after school. Um, and he was just an amazing character. And talk about people who have a massive um, effect on 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 your life. He, he, he really ignited my sort of my enjoyment of running. Um, at the time, there wasn't really a... Um, opportunities for for getting involved in something like blind football competitively because it was there wasn't really the structure within within England so um although I grew up loving football and cricket and other sports it was athletics that I really got into um competitively you know I love what Nigel managed to inspire in you you know going from hating something to being world champion in something in the space of two years come on Nigel that's unbelievable but you know, just on a personal level of my tennis journey, you know, I go into schools and and I coach as many, get as many of our local youngsters into tennis as I possibly can. And and I hope, you know, I hope I can ignite the the love of, of sport, you know, not just tennis. I really hope if I if any if I manage to get one pupil talking in that way that you did about Nigel, then man, I'll I'll feel I've succeeded because what an impact he, he had on your life. Oh, it was huge. I mean, what he did was, is he turned all I associated with cross-country running was pain and discomfort. And he didn't take that away. Nobody can take away the pain of working hard. Um, That is something that you get in any sport, you know, when you've got to really, you've really got to grit your teeth and, and push. What he actually did was, is he helped to give me, to help me see the incentive you know, we would set, he would set little goals in terms of um, it, whether it was timing things, whether it was um, designing sort of courses where there were lots of change. You know, it might be different terrains and going up hills and going down hills. It was, oh, next week we'll do this thing. And next week we'll, you know, I, I sort of, in a weird way, without sort of calling it special, you know, actual calling him a coach, he was coaching me in that way where you sort of set little short-term goals so uh, as well as having a long-term goal um I guess the fact that I started entering a couple of competitions then obviously having done a competition then thinking 
all right, I want to do better next time. That sort of gave me that long-term goal. But he was very good at sort of week on week, making it, always making it fun and interesting. It never seemed to get monotonous. You know, um, I would come to the end of a session and I would feel absolutely exhausted, but I'd feel happy that we completed this little step, you know? Love it. Love it. And so you said, you know, that the opportunities in, in football weren't there. Yeah, I know, you know, you've gone on to play for England. You played for Great Britain in the London 2012 Paralympics. How did the opportunities with, how did that part of your your journey start? Yeah, so, um, I mean, from the age of four, I was kicking a football around. Um, you know, we I always used to take a ball with a sound in, into school. Um, it did get quite challenging because um, in the mainstream school environment, you, you got hordes of, eager footballers at varying different levels but what you tend to find is when you get a large group of people playing football particularly when they can see the ball seems to spend more time in the air than it does on the ground and when you're particularly small like I was anyway and plus with the ball not really making much of a sound when it was in the air when it got to being like big games of you know large groups of people I would just lose track of what was happening uh, but growing up, I would say, you know, I, I my sort of um, bet most most times I sort of got real enjoyment out of football was actually playing one v one with my older brother in the back garden, um, because at least I mean he was bigger, stronger, a bit uglier than me, <laughs> and um, well, that's just my own personal opinion. <laughs> um, joking, but um, you know, I. He was he was someone who I we we played in the same way. He was you know he was a lot a lot older than me. So it, it, but it, in one way it was good because it meant that I had to work harder to beat him. But um, I was always you know at least I was at least we were playing we were listening to the ball you know so we had that thing in common um, and that was massively helpful. But it wasn't really until I was in my early twenties. And um, athletics had unfortunately I'd hit a bit of a a bit of a bump in the road. Um, I ha- was having some serious problems with back pain, um, which actually turns out it was down to uh, hypermobility in certain joints in my feet. Um, and it eventually it meant I had to go for um, some quite uh, extensive surgery. I've now got. Um, plates in both feet to sort of fuse certain joints together um without them I probably wouldn't have been able to continue doing any kind of running sport to a to a decent level um but I came out I I had I had all my rehab which was supported by UK athletics um at the time I was on I was on a well I had been on a development contract which they unfortunately terminated after my rehab um which was obviously a shame um but for me, it was just, I just wanted to get back into playing sport again. And it just so happened at the time, there was a new National Blind Football League set up. And um, I did some trials for, for the Everton team, because Everton were entering a blind football team into the league. And I went into that environment. This was in sort of 2008, 2009. Really quite excited. Um, no aspirations, really, for England. Just I just thought, this is a great chance for me to actually play football in a team with other blind people 
against other blind people, which is something I have never in my life had the opportunity to do. I didn't know how good or how bad I was going to be. What I did know was that as soon as I met up with the team to travel down to um, Hereford, where our first game was, as I just knew that team sport was was really the thing I wanted to be involved in going forward. I just lo- I just loved the banter. I just loved it from the you know the pra- uh, messing around on the on the minibus going down to coming home and win or lose. You you have a, a good good bit of banter with each other, and it was just a great environment. And um, I, I things went well for me in the, my first season. Um, and I credit. What position were you, Roy? I've got to ask. What position did you start out as there when you played that game for Everton? Um, well, so blind football's played five aside. Um, for if, if for those who've heard of futsal, um, it's very much based on the rules of futsal. Um, goalkeepers are fully sighted, and um, the ball is a slightly smaller but slightly heavier ball, so it stays on the ground. But with blind football, it also has um, a sound in it as well. I would say I was very much a defender when I started out. Um, my sort of technical skills were incredibly rusty because of not playing a great deal of, of football. Um, plus, when I did run with the ball, I was very, because of my running background, everything was very much in straight lines. And when you, I suppose, further on in my career, started to learn more about the multi-directional changes and everything else that I needed to be um, incorporating to beat players but um, I was very much I could I could run and win you know if I lost the ball which was quite regularly at that time um, I would I would win it back you know I, I had good I had a good engine which is obviously from the athletics had really good fundamental skills so um, the ability to track things and know where I was through through sound and echolocation because of my background and because of the independence that I'd been able to enjoy growing up, I had those fundamental skills to, to you know, that I could build on. Um, and it was enough that the England coaches um, took an interest and invited me to start training with the provisional squad for London 2012. That must have just been amazing. You must have just been buzzing. Yeah, well, initially at first it was a, it was, you know, it was an email and an invite to join the squad, and it was very much a provisional squad. There were a lot more players invited than you know eventually went, um, but you know it was it was a fantastic sort of step in the right direction, and I I went into it thinking this isn't sort of the the end. This is the start. You know, I thought when I went to my first training weekend, I thought. I got so much to learn from this and, you know, and and if I do want to then make it into that, that actual squad, you know, I've got, I've got a lot of things to do. Um, but I was excited about that challenge rather than sort of um, daunted by it. Um, and if you're excited, if you're excited, you're going to play with freedom, aren't you? You're going to play better anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. And I knew that, at the time, if we were playing any friendly fixtures or or any other games, I I knew that if I was to, if I was going to be on the pitch, it would be for maybe short periods of time, sort of two minutes, five to five minutes. You know, I'd be coming on as a substitute, playing a bit, and I just thought I cannot stand and wonder. I've got to get straight in there if it means that I go in and I attempt to make a tackle and I, I concede a foul that's better than kind of standing off and letting things happen around me you know I'd, I've got to take those opportunities the best I can um I think it helped me the fact that I was 
in in a position where I was a little bit older. Um, so I did think about things in quite, you know, quite an analytical way. I think my athletics background, you know, that that sort of working with other coaches before, it helped me sort of organize things in my head. You know, I knew that there was a lot of things to learn, but I also knew that I couldn't learn everything at once. So if I went to a training camp, I would set myself a target. I would have one technical takeaway from the weekend and one physical takeaway from each corner. I would take one thing away to, to learn. So, you know, technical, physical, psychological. I love it. I love it. Love these little goals. They've been all the way through. It's back to our Nigel, isn't it? It's uh, he's setting those little goals and then, um, and you made it, you know, you made it into the, the, the GB team GB Paralympic football team. What was that experience like? I mean, it was, it was incredible. Um, I mean, we didn't medal at London 2012. Um, at the time, we were one of the very few teams who weren't full-time, who weren't sort of employed as sort of full-time athletes. So we were meeting a lot less than other teams. So I think considering the, the, the sort of the, the stage the team was at, it was a great achievement, you know, to have qualified and, and, and to have done as well as we did. I was young in my football journey. So, you know, I saw as, as much as, you know, I was, um, I was involved and I, I, I enjoyed the event. You know, I came out of it even more hungry than ever, wanting to be, wanting to become a senior player, wanting to become one of those players who was on the pitch all of the time. You know, I, I made, it was a great uh, milestone for me was that I made my first ever start for England and Great Britain during the um, the London 2012 Paralympics. So during the group stages, I'd been coming on as a, as a substitute and, you know, I'd been, I'd been doing okay. I'd been, you, you know, doing the things that I suppose were, were expected of me. Um, but we, we set up against China in a, in a playoff in China at the time were one of certainly in the top, the top four in the world. And I was, I was picked to start against them. Um, and to stand and sing the national anthem for my country, not just at a you know in a friendly game or in a um, as a spectator, but to do it at the London Paralympic Games, you know, one of the biggest events to have in the world up to now, was just something I'll never forget. Right. You know, um, how did it go against China? Um, we drew one all and then we lost on penalties. So typical England story, honestly. Oh. Oh. <laughs> but um, you know, I I just you know I've 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 gone on to represent my country over a hundred. I've got a hundred and three caps now, and I've scored uh, forty three goals. Well, I didn't score a goal until my thirty fourth appearance. <laughs> but to that experience of twenty twelve, it's just. It's up there with with any other personal achievement that I've had since. You know, it's just it's just an experience. The songs that come on now, um, David Bowie, um, Weekly Heroes. Yes, the opening ceremony. Yeah, yeah exactly. And when that comes on, I, I, whatever I'm doing, I kind of just have to stop and sort of take a breath, and it just takes me right back to there. You know, in this this era we're in, where you're never quite sure if you're coming and going because of COVID and stuff. Yeah. If we think back to 2012, like, and there was a lot of negativity going into the Olympics, wasn't there, about London and the Olympics? 
Or yeah. it was, yeah. cool. it was oh, it's all going to fail. It's um, all the money that's gone into it, all of this, all of that. And then fast forward to um, after the closing ceremony, I remember going around London on those floats, the open top floats. And it was like unrecognisable. You know, you got London on a normal day where nobody will even look at each other on the tube. And then you've got people standing on bus shelter roofs, standing on office roofs, hanging out of windows. You've got just all of these it's absolute crazy scenes going around London. You know, if I could go back, if I could get that DeLorean from Back to the Future and go back, <laughs> One of the times I'd choose was 2012, man. I, you know, I know what the tube was like, and yet, you know, normal days, but everyone was talking. There was an incredible buzz. There was a feeling of we can make things happen, and and it was just such a positive, life affirming time. And you were part of that. I mean, what you? I'm guessing, like, where were the where were the games held? Were you getting good crowds in? Yeah, so we, we they were held at the Riverbank Arena, which is where they'd held the um, the hockey during the Olympics. Yeah. And the the thing was, is it was a it was a large and largish crowd. You're sort of talking five five to six thousand, but right. they didn't want it to be too big. That but you see, the thing is, is when um when football when blind football's being played, whilst the ball's in play, the crowd are meant to be uh, completely silent. Obviously, they can cheer and shout, you know between times when the ball's out of play or if there's a goal scored. But obviously, you can imagine managing that with, say, 30,000, 40,000 people in there at once. It would be um, quite a challenge. Um, it's it's crazy because because they're so quiet during the game, you'd almost forget they were there and then someone would shoot or, you know, and there'd be an ooh from the crowd or whatever. And it, it's almost startle you because you'd, be like, you'd almost forget that they were there. Wow. But what an experience. And you've gone on you've had... 103 caps did i mean i think you know at st george's isn't there a board where there's um people who have made 50 or 100 caps i'm on it <laughs> yeah yeah oh come on i need to get down there you know because i've been down roy with the kids um we're for people listening we're very lucky we live close to st george's i i, I remember seeing the board and looking at it and then one of the kids had run off somewhere and I went without looking properly. I need to get down and check this out. Yeah, there was a really nice moment. So me and um, another one of my long-term teammates, who's a, a great, we've become real good friends over the years. We we got our 100th cap and we got on the wall at exactly, pretty much exactly the same time. Wow. Um, and um, it was just, it was just really nice, you know, to, we, we got a picture together in front of the wall and you know it's just it was just nice to look back on that journey and that's what it's about really it's it's not it's not necessarily about you just on your own it's about the people who've gone along on that journey with you and it was it was great to have had such a close friend to kind of share that that experience with actually well you got to give him a shout out who's who's this friend and so robin williams um robbo's uh similar amount of caps to me um he he retired actually uh, last year. I've, I've kind of outlived him in terms of footballing years, but then again, he's had some um, very challenging um, experiences over the last couple of years. He had to he battled. Um, he had a tumor, a large tumor removed from his face, so he had to have like extended surgery. I mean, it's incredible, really, because he actually he he made it back. He managed to recover and and get, and. Um, and rehab and get back into the the Europeans in 2019. 
um, after spending a year out because of um, having radiotherapy and, and um, extensive surgery. So, you know, he's inspiring. You know, I, I, he's, a, he's one, of, one of the big inspirations for me. So, you know, just a person who I've, you know, had the privilege to play alongside both for club and for, for country as well. And, you know, that's the biggest thing for me. It's the, friend, it's the friends you meet along the way um when you do things like sport and music it's it's those people you meet along the way and the things that you learn and the experiences that you share you know they, these these are people you sort of go on the pitch with and it's not just about winning a match you you die you die for these people you know when you learn about the experiences that they've had and the challenges that they've overcome as well it becomes becomes something more than just winning and losing Mate, well, if Robbo, if you if you get a chance to listen to this, sending you all the very best, and I will be looking out for you both on that board. I mean, um, Roy, this isn't going to be the last time I ask you this question today, but if I want to see you play football, if people are listening to this and they want to see you play football, where where are the the England visually impaired matches? Where 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 would we see you play? So obviously. I don't think you can go through any sort of conversation at the moment without bringing up the, um, the dread COVID. Um, you know, that's that's posed restrictions. things. We actually played um, two sort of closed door friendlies against Germany in back in November. And they were the first matches we've played, international matches we've played since um, since the end of 2019. And um, they George's Park. Um, so basically, there's two pitches in... England that are set up to host blind football at the moment. Uh, one of those is at St George's Park. We've got our own pitch. And um, one of those is at um, the Royal National College for the Blind in Hereford. Um, what it is, um, we play with, the, there's rebound boards down the sides of the pitch um, that are sort of angled slightly away from the pitch. And they allow players to um, use echolocation to know exactly where sort of the, the out you know, the board into the pitch are. And because um, it'd be very difficult to um, kind of get an impression of where the touchline was. Um, so these boards are obviously, they're quite cumbersome. They're expensive as well. So there's only a couple of pitches really that have them. Um, in 2023, um, Great Britain's hosting the um, International Blind Sports uh, World Games and blind football is going to be a big part of that. That is going to be, in Birmingham, I'm not sure if the venue though for the blind football has been confirmed, but that is going to be a massive event that um, I would encourage anybody if they're interested in how blind sports are played, any blind sports, tennis, football, goalball, cricket, any of those sorts of things, how they're played by blind people. Look out for look out for that event. Um, in um, it's going to be, I think, spring summer 2023. Amazing, and I mean we haven't even come on to talk about tennis yet, but I'm loving this already. Um, have you aspirations to play to continue playing football and tennis all the way through? You know, you, is this is this is this a longer term goal? I know you've got goals. <laughs> well, for me at the moment, um, you know, football is is my I would say my 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 number one priority. Um, you know, I'm I'm a mentor for the FA, so I, I'm passionate. I've got I'm in a a role where I can help support young players get into the game. I'm on a playing contract um, still with the FA to play blind football as well. You know, I love the sport. Um, I'm well aware of the um, 
of the clock that we all have that, you know, I know that there's going to be a time when I won't be able to play football at that level. Um, and so I want to make the most of, of, you know, my football career while I can. Um, tennis for me, I feel like the, the way that, the way that blind tennis is, you know, it's something that I could play at the highest, at a high level for a lot longer. Um, and it is, it's, it's, you know, I, I would still, I still play tennis regularly. You know, I have, I have coach lessons every week because I choose to, and it's at the end of the day, so much of tennis is about footwork. So the two sports cross over quite a lot in that respect and the multi-directional movement. Um, and also it's nice to have that thing that is, you know, for me at the moment, tennis is some, you know, I play, they play in the, you know, the national and regional tournaments. I've even got selected for the internationals, which sadly didn't go ahead. But there's the, there's no, there's not the same, there's not the same pressure as there has been with football. It's me and me alone sort of thing. You know, if I lose a game, there's not going to be an inquest. I'm not going to sit in meetings with people sort of reviewing it. And there's, there's a place for that, you know, but I think you can only really do that with one sport. I think it's nice, you know, tennis, I just do because I lo- I, I enjoy playing it. And football is my sport. Yes, I love it. I enjoy playing it. But it, as well, I do have those, um, you know, those things, those meetings where I'm given, ex- you know, I've got, there are expectations of governing bodies and, and other things as well. The thing, the thing is though, Roy, like, you, so you, you're doing the tennis because you love it. But you've been national champion, my friend. I mean, I love playing golf, but, you know, it's a relaxing thing to do, but I'm nowhere near the Ryder Cup. So, I mean, how how have you gone from, you know, starting out? I, mean, I think I'm right in saying that visually impaired tennis was only introduced into the UK in 2011. So how have you gone from giving it a go to becoming a, a national champion? Um, I think it's, there's something that... Um... I, I, I get the, the opportunity um, to go into schools a lot and speak to children about, um, well, the, the aim obviously is to leave some real, some positive messages and, and inspire them to, you know, to believe that they can achieve um, what they want to achieve. And one of the things I always point to is the fact that obviously in sport, you see people who have sort of, you know, physical gifts so to speak or who are naturally seem more physically adept at doing a certain sport but it's understanding that there are so many other skills that make up um a top sports person and some of them are within your mind well some of the most important are within your mind and quite often you see it's that thing where um hard work beats talent if talent doesn't work hard enough and, you know, you'll see children who have a lot of natural talent and almost take it for granted. And then you'll see the sort of the, um, you know, the whole hare and the tortoise situation. You'll get somebody who will just plug away and keep keep having that determination. And I've always been one of those people. And for people who, you know, tennis fans will listen to this podcast, they may, they may be aware of visually impaired tennis, but they might not know how it works. How, how does the, the game work? So, um... So tennis for visually impaired people, there's um, there's several different categories that people are split into depending on their level of sight. So I play in what's called the uh, the B1 category, which is for people with um, little or no sight. Um, whatever sight you have, 
um, you can't use because you play with a blindfold, um, like like with blind football, actually. But then there's there are other categories um, from that are numbered from B2 up to B5 as well. So for people who've got some useful vision, different degrees of vision, um, and the courts that you play on are slightly di- are different dimensions. So for a B1, you play on the red court. So those who, which is the, the mini red court, which is kind of a similar size to a badminton court. Um, so it just means that you've got, because it's so much based on your hearing, you're never far too far away from the ball that you can't kind of pick it up. Um, you, you tend to not hear the ball until it bounces, you see. So it's played like short tennis effectively um and then um the the high categories who've got some vision to use they play on the um generally on the orange court which is which is a bit larger um also the ball we use is um so it's like a it's got a foam outer casing and then inside there's like a plastic like a pellet with um ball bearings inside um and that's what makes the generates the sound um, when you play as a B1, you're allowed to return the ball off up to three bounces. Ball doesn't make a great deal of sound in the air. So the, it's the real cue that you get of where to move to to um, hit the ball is generally off the the first bounce. So it just gives you a chance to um, to track and use your you know use your blind skills, use your you know your your hearing, your your tracking and everything to to be able to to get ra- behind the ball and return it. Wow, and and I know. I mean, have you got highlights? What's been your tennis highlights? I know, you know, clearly you've had some amazing times in the football world. And but from a tennis point of view, what have been your highlights? I think the highlight for me, um, I think the actually again one of the biggest highlights was probably winning the mixed doubles with um, a, someone who I've met through tennis has become a you know a good friend. Um, a lady called Tracy um, Compton. And the, the, the thing that made it so special was that we'd played doubles a lot together, but we'd not actually won a tournament. And then we went and won the nationals. <laughs> and it was a real roller coaster because we, we came from some quite, you know, on a couple of occasions came from a set down. And for, for, for Tracy in particular, it was the first time that she'd won um any any sort of tournament on the circuit and to celebrate that with her again I think it goes back to that whole thing about being part of a team and I think it's great to celebrate the individual success but when you've got somebody you can share that with it just makes it even more special I think retaining my singles title um and at the time it qualified me for the international that was also a you know that was also a big highlight um for me um unfortunately the international was cancelled because of uh, covid but to have actually you know gotten there was you know I was I was over the moon amazing amazing where where i mean where do these where do the national championships take place um well the last couple of years they've been at um, the Wrexham tennis center mm. um so um, they have been at Loughborough as well. Um, we have a regional circuit as well, which is, you know, ranging from Glasgow down to um, Brighton and, uh, and London as well. Um, so there's, the, the ten- tennis is played sort of in different, blind tennis is played in different parts of the country. I think they see Wrexham as a, 
regular now for the uh, the blind uh, the national uh, championships at the moment. Oh well, I'll, I'll again. I'll be keeping an eye out. I'll be promoting it however I can, and I'm I'm hoping I can see you uh, playing uh, the visually impaired tennis as well. I mean. But you see, the thing is, normally this would be the end and, you know, we'd go, uh, oh, well, you know, thanks for chatting. But it's not because you've got the whole music side of things going on, you know. And something I've always wanted to do is is to play the drums. I'm always drumming away, you know, on the table and the like. Yet I think I'm right in thinking that, you know, you're a very, very keen and competent and passionate drummer. Well, my neighbours wouldn't think that, but... um. <laughs> Yeah, so I, um, well, I started playing music from the age of eight. It was actually, the clarinet was my first instrument and I was playing in sort of, um, I was playing in the Liverpool Youth Orchestra and I sort of learned kind of, you know, uh, had, had like quite a classical background, had a tutor who sort of got me into jazz as well. Um, but then at the same time, I went into secondary, well, I went when I went into secondary school, I went to a school that was just had an incredible music department where they just they encouraged people to get involved and and play the instruments rather than just telling people don't touch that you might break it sort of thing which I've learned you know other schools ha- are like sometimes and yeah. I, um, I was just mesmerised by the drums and I think it's one of those things where I, I did I did have quite a a natural understanding of rhythm. So, you know, the, the basics came quite quickly, but then I started to explore, you know, different styles of music. The biggest and most important thing that happened, I would say, that allowed me to sort of progress as a drummer was that I met um, three other three other lads of the same age who were really keen to start a band. And it wasn't a case of two of them could play and the other was just the mate who they you know, we tried to slot in, you know, and, and give a tambourine to or something. You know, these were guys who were really all really keen and committed and wanted to play gigs and wanted to get out there and started writing songs. And throughout my entire school um, years, we were together as a band and beyond for a couple of years as well. And, you know, when you've got that, uh, that chance to play regularly, it just, you know, I just had that sort of, um, I always had that to work towards and I started discovering or being shown lots of different types of music. Um, I was, uh, you know, ended up playing like biker rallies and different things when I was in my early 20s and, um, you know, doing mini tours and that sort of thing alongside my sort of athletics and which was quite difficult actually because late night gigging doesn't really uh, coincide well with um, early runs. I'm just thinking about, you know, the bands I loved when I was growing up, the Stone Roses, stuff like that. Yeah. As much as I admired Rennie, you know, I had a hat because of Rennie. I had a Rennie hat. I can't <laughs> imagine him, like, going out and playing his drums and then getting up and doing the World Cross Country Championships, you know. It's the rock and roll lifestyle and the sporting lifestyle. They don't always meet in the middle, yet somehow you were combining the two. Well, you know what, actually? When you play, when you play drums... And you're under the heat of, you know, when you've got a lot of lights around, that's what generates the, the, the heat on stage that you're playing in and the elect, you know, the electronics that are around. It's, it's an environment where it probably does help to be relatively fit. Absolutely. You know? And actually, you know, I'm thinking about it. It probably is a phenomenal workout, isn't it? Oh, I, some of the, 
particularly because um, I was playing quite heavy music for, for quite a period of time. And um, particularly when we started doing the, 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 the biker rallies and that sort of thing, we were doing like three sets and um, and I'd, I'd come off and I, it would, I, I mean, I wear, you know, I wear heart rate monitors and train and, you know, use um, training apps and various things now. But I would imagine if I'd put like a monitor on at the time, it would the data would have been quite interesting. Um, and then the worst thing is you come off stage and you've, you've been sweating your heart out for whatever, three, four hours. And then you realize you've got to put your own gear away because you haven't got because <laughs> we were where <laughs> we had our own roadies and it's like oh no we've got to carry this PA out now so yeah massive massive workout um, but you know you know what I love like you know we've we've talked football you started off playing your brother in the garden took tennis the opportunity to and you you know in the football you went onto the Paralympics and all these caps for England in the tennis you started playing for fun you ended up being national champion. What I love with the music is you know it, it, I'm sure the drums is a hobby for a lot of people, but you ended up you know you've you've drummed with some amazing people. You, yeah, I'm thinking of Louisa Roach and she drew the gun. You ended up who's a who's a fantastic Liverpool band. Do look them up on Spotify. Anyone they've got some fantastic songs. You ended up touring with them. How did that come about? So actually, um, I was already I was already good friends with Louisa because um, well we met originally we played in a band together um, called Lulu and the Boy. It was myself, Louisa, and um, uh, a lady called Lucy Styles, who, as far as I knew, was um, actually playing keyboards. Which she drew the gun, um, and we were a three piece. And um, so I was I was drumming, and all three of us sang. And um, Louisa was actually playing bass at the time. And she also played in a Beatles tribute band, an all-female Beatles tribute band called the Beatles. And um, she asked me to join the Beatles. Um, I was, <laughs> I, I, they didn't force me to to, to dress up in in drag. Or, although <laughs> I'm on it, I'm not. <laughs> I don't think I'm afraid to do it. Um, so um, I, I did some drumming with 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 the with the Beatles. Um, we played in a band together, and then I moved. I'd recently moved back to Liverpool. And Louisa got in touch with me about this UK tour they were doing, supporting a band called Cabbage. And it was a 12-day tour. And to, it was a fantastic to have been, you know, given the opportunity to do it. Um, it was at reasonably short notice, um, but managed to... I think the biggest challenge was I was actually training for the, um, the World Championships, the Football World Championships at the time. So it was quite strenuous because we sort of did the tour in three, three lots of four dates. And um, in between coming home, um, I was having to uh, factor in my training as well, um, which was challenging because when you're on a, when you're traveling between gigs on a minibus on a um, you know on a, a six seat a bus, you know nursing boxes of equipment and merchandise and that on top of you, you don't necessarily get the most sleep. So, <laughs> but. It's all about it's all about experiences, really, isn't it? And I, I just had an amazing experience. Um, I was very um, very grateful to have been given the opportunity to come and, and tour with um, with Louisa and, and and Jack and the guys, and it was um, it was great fun. It was a shame, obviously, with football commitments, it wasn't something that I could do more sort of long term. Um, but you know, doing the tour was was fantastic. You know, just listening though, Roy, like. It just makes my head want to explode because 
I just, you know, as somebody, you know, me sitting here and dreaming of playing for my country at football, tennis as a young lad, dreaming of being in a band because, like, where music can send you, you know, guy, you can snap you out and it can make you happy in any time and it can motivate you, you know, and yet you've done all these things. It, it, it's incredible. It's incredible. Um, I mean, you know, you've managed to combine the rock and roll lifestyle with the, the sporting pursuits, which is an achievement unto itself. Um, what, any more, you know, ambitions? Is there anything else you're going to be going into? Well, I, I must say, like, um, there's the, the challenge with, with sort of being involved in quite a lot of things is that sometimes you can get your, your goals mixed up. And I must say, I've had periods of time where I've sort of felt like I've been at a crossroads where I've been like, oh, I want to go off and I want to join a band and I want to do this. And then it'll, there'll always be a, but what about this? You know, what, what about, that would mean you wouldn't be able to do this. And then if you don't do that, that means you won't be able to do this. So, you know, it has its own challenges. And, you know, I, I do regularly have those sort of moments where I think, what do I really want to do next? And particularly over, you know, over lockdown, you know, I'm sure we've all had our own kind of battles to fight, internal battles as well as, you know, external ones. And um, I definitely have had mine. Um, you know, I'd actually stepped away from football just before lockdown for, for various reasons. Um, but during lockdown, obviously, um, a lot of reflection and sort of thought about, you know, the, what, I, what things really matter right now. And, um, you know, it's like I was saying before, there's certain things that I know I could do for a very long time, but there's certain things that have a very, you know, that there will be a cutoff point. Um, and certainly football is one of those things. Sport is one of those things where you, you, you can play it your whole life, but, you know, there's, if you've been to that high, that top level, whilst you, you know, I want to be at that point where if I if I'm not able to play at that level, um, I can accept it. You know, it would have been difficult to have stepped away from football two years ago, and then got ten years down the line and tried to play again, and then been like, oh, I've lost that opportunity now. You know, I'm I'm keen over the next, certainly the next four year cycle, to really make the most of the you know that that element of my of my life you know as a sports person um very grateful as well to the FA that I've been given the opportunity to not only carry on as a player but to sort of involve myself in sort of further career opportunities as a as a mentor to you know to younger players as well which is something new which I'm you know which which will go alongside my, my playing and that gives me that little bit more security of knowing I'm doing things that are you know further developing my skills off the off the pitch as well as on the pitch yeah. um i'm very keen um basically my my drumming you know i've been ticking over been playing but it's been all it's been very much to a a youtube backing track um over the last <laughs> the last 82 years i'd love to explore the opportunity of getting into a band even if it's a band that's you know can't you know doesn't want to go out on major tours or anything but wants to play you know semi-regularly and I'd, I'd love to play you know to get out and play some gigs again I think the last thing I did sort of was live well say live performance was um the the, ch uh, the charity the fundraising event that I did 
um, during lockdown. Which, which, I mean, just to say, I want to get out. I want to come and see you play football, tennis, and I want to do the triathlon there, football, tennis, and the drumming. But I mean, it, didn't you do drumming for twenty six hours? You know, I think you were raising funds for British British Blind Sports. Was it a twenty six hour drumathon? Yeah, I mean, I think it's. Um, oh, who's the guy? There's a guy who's who's done something fairly similar recently and raised uh, millions of pounds for, uh, I think it was for children in need, wasn't it? Um, I kind of, I, I think, I think you know, whatever, who, however funds are raised, it's just incredible when people make those commitments to, you know, and so many people do, you know, make those commitments to raising money for charities and particularly at the moment, given how much they've suffered because of lockdown. But I am a little bit smug in the fact that I did two hours longer than he did. I also had less breaks. Um, <laughs> And I also had less of a support net. I had basically my entire support network con- consisted of my partner, Jen, who was throwing smoothies down my neck while <laughs> in the middle of playing every, every now and again, taping up my fingers every couple of hours. Fortunately, she is a doctor as well, which kind of helps. Um, and updating all of the Facebook live feeds and doing all of that whilst I was, um, whilst I was drumming away. And, um, yeah, I mean, I it was early on in lockdown. Um, I was I'd been furloughed from my job. Um, I work for a charity actually, um, so I, I understand, you know, how difficult it is for charities to raise funds in normal times. Let alone when all of those opportunities to go out and do events, sort of like the London Marathon and that, you know, when they're not available in the in the conventional way, you know, so many charities um, would would struggle. So I was in a position where, and also on a personal level, I needed something to focus on. I just had so much taken away. You know, yeah. I was preparing to go away and compete internationally. And now that had been taken away. You know, I I wanted to, you know, go out and get get into, you know, joining bands and doing various things that, you know, because I'd not long moved to, to Hull and I, you know, just settled in and I was ready to do those things. So this, this was, this was, opportunity for me to do something that was good for me personally but also hopefully very um important for a charity that meant a lot to me you know British Blind Sports when I was growing up the competitions they ran allowed me to you know progress as an athlete and to meet loads of new friends um more recently I was running um some of their sessions on their the have a go days that they run for visually blind and partially sighted uh, children across the country and then um, through those have a go days I'd I'd met two children who I were who I'm still to this day kind of mentoring in in PE and sport and so they had a massive impact on my life and I thought well you know I'll do something that combines both my music and my sport in that you know the endurance to try and play for that period of time as you know whilst playing whilst playing music um you know it was um it just seemed like a a very reckless, but <laughs> to do. <laughs> well, you know? yeah, Twenty six hours. It's absolutely incredible. I mean, you've just had so many things on. I mean, if people want to keep up with everything that's going on within you, have you have you got your own social media? Where where can people find out more? Yeah, so I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter as um, Roy Turner Music. Um, yeah. Um, to be honest, I'm not the most. I'm quite. Um, 
I am quite lazy with social media. It's something that I want to improve on moving forward. <laughs> but um, yeah, you you know, check check out my my Twitter page, my my Facebook as well. You know, um, anyone as well. You know, interested in getting involved in blind sports, whether it be from as as a coach or you know just to learn more about the sport, or whether you know somebody who who may want to get involved as a as a participant um you know there's i know there's a lot of visually impaired people out there who haven't had the support that i have particularly people who've lost sight later on in life and maybe feeling a bit lost and don't know where to start you know i i'm fortunate in that i i'm involved in a lot of you know a variety of different sports a variety of different networks and i, I would be really it'd be great to hear from anybody who'd like to know anything more about how they can get involved, you know, whether it be as a player, coach, official, um, you know, please get in touch. Oh, that's lovely. That's a really kind offer. And I mean, just some, whilst I was doing my research, Roy, last couple of questions, but there was, there was a poll I saw on Twitter um, and it was, it was sports and activities for the visually impaired Northwest. And they had retweeted this poll. And the question was, if you're blind or partially sighted, what is most likely to stop you shopping and enjoying a little re retail therapy? There was a range of options, but the number one option that people had gone, gone for with 30.5% was public understanding. So, you know, in your, in your mind, how can the public help address this? and make it, you know, a, a better experience for blind or partially sighted people to get out and about and do the things that people who don't have sight loss can do? I think one of the big things is, is to approach, approach someone with a visual impairment with an open mind. Never assume, you know, never. Uh, I think what happens is sometimes if you see somebody who's visually impaired and they're with somebody who's not, Rather than talking to the visually impaired person, people quite often will address the person who they're with. And that and I understand that sometimes people are scared of saying the wrong things or, you know, of offending people by saying the wrong things. But actually, you're more offensive to someone by ignoring them. And that's important is feel free, ask questions. You know, if you're unsure, ask questions, but ask the person directly. It doesn't matter whether, 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 you know, what disability someone's got. First of all, ask them directly. You know, that's how you learn. You don't learn by ignoring someone. You know, the most, I know for myself, so if, if, some, if someone assumes something about me, I know I'm going to find it more challenging than if someone asks me in the first place how to go about something. So if someone comes up to me and says, Oh, can I help you at all? And at least even if I don't need help, I can say no, but thanks, you know, thanks for asking. If someone yeah. comes, grabs hold of my arm, sort of assuming and almost demanding, you need my help. I, you know, I've had it before. I've been like stepping off a train and I've been in control of what I'm doing, but then somebody grabs your arm and yes, they are trying to be helpful, but they're actually interfering, unfortunately, because they're actually, you're not expecting it for one thing. Yeah. Uh, and that can cause more problems than if they hadn't done anything in the first place. The yeah. best thing is actually ask someone first, you know, have a dialogue. I think with anything to do with whether it's discrim whatever discrimination it is, it's all about having a dialogue. 
the only way you will stop um i don't necessarily think it's a lot of the time with visually impaired people it's not people being malicious and trying to hurt people it's people just not knowing how to act but whether you, whether it's to stop sort of malicious activity or whether it's not the only way you do that is by education it's by learning and the only way you you teach and you learn is by having a dialogue you know by assuming things and by um you know look or going to the wrong source for those things then you you won't get the the results that you know you won't get the best results for everyone really that's it's good advice and and certainly that's, you know, let's hope that that's helped educate the, the folk who are listening to the podcast. So, yeah, wise words, Roy, wise words. Yeah, I, the thing is, I don't want to I don't want to scare people and I certainly don't like it. I know that sometimes the the mantra around inclusion can sometimes if it can be almost a bit bullying. It can almost come across. It can almost make people more scared of engaging. And I would say, you know, don't be scared. You know, if someone comes up to me and asks me a question, I'm re- I'm re- always going to be really happy to answer. You know, children, when I go to schools, it's great because they just ask whatever's on their on their mind. Yeah. And, you know, if they ask some, you, you know, you sometimes you hear the teachers, you know, they'll ask you something and the teachers will be like, oh, you can't ask that. You can't. And I'll be like, yes, they can, because that's how they learn. You know? And so don't be afraid to ask a question, no matter how how daft you think that question might be you know, fit, you know, ask, ask away. Come on. Well, thank you so much, Roy. I mean, it, it's, it's been brilliant to hear about, I can't say journey, it's journeys, it's journeys and can't wait to see what your next chapters bring. Um, but a question we ask everyone, you know, uh, if you could go for a drink with anyone alive or dead, who would it be and why? Uh, there's probably two people who spring to mind here. Um, Stephen King, the author um i just think um you know i've, I've been a, a big fan of a lot of his a lot of his work and his writing just screams of somebody who just has explores so many different things i can imagine him just being a really interesting person you know yes i know he's associated with horror but there's so much so much history and so much um knowledge of different sort of genres uh, um, of things within his work that I just think I just think you'd never run out of something to talk about. I've never read a Stephen King book, and you know, actually, this the podcast has really helped introduce some amazing literature uh, into my canon, my literary canon. If there's a book I should be reading that people should be reading out there, if if there's anyone else is thinking that, which one would you recommend? Um, oh, I mean. There's there's the sort of conventional ones like um, like the Green Mile, which is you know obviously was adapted into the film, and the film was a great um, interpretation of the book. I think if you've seen the film of The Shining, um, the book goes way more into the kind of um, the the psychological side of it, which is something that for me it really I'm really really interested in. Maybe it's the side of things. I'm never really that interested in sort of horror in terms of you know. like what it is on the telly where it's you know people slashing hell out of each other i'm really interested in the psychological side of things um but then something that's maybe a little bit less horror but a bit more kind of fantasy i'm currently reading the um the dark tower trilogy um which is a series of books kind of about um sort of uh different worlds 
sort of linking up together. And it's it's very interesting because it sort of crosses over a lot with the history of our own world, as well as bringing in sort of other kind of science fiction elements as well. So, yeah. You were going to come on to another person as well, weren't you? Oh, yeah, probably, um, probably Dave Grohl. I mean, Dave Grohl's very much my man crush, to be honest. I just think he's an incredible person. I've just read his autobiography. Um, how he's managed to be so successful as a, you know, as a one of the giants of of rock music, but also, you know, be uh, a family man and be a be a nice guy and and keep himself together as well. I think is just it's just incredible. Yeah. I love I love everything he's been involved in. To be fair, so um, Nirvana, Foo Fighters, um, uh, the stuff he's done with the um, Queens of the Stone Age and and that sort of thing as well. Come on. Dave, God, what a good one that would be. He's kept his head together. He's managed to do that rock and roll lifestyle and be that nice guy at the same time. And from what I can tell, Roy, you've done a similar thing yourself, my friend. Well, no, I, I try, try my best. Well, listen, man, I mean, thank you so much, as I said, for sharing all of your journeys. It's I've absolutely loved chatting. I can't wait to listen back because I think There'll be some insp- there is some inspirational stuff in there that we can all take in terms of approach and making things happen and having little goals and you know and being at crossroads and what to do when you're at crossroads and things like that. So I can't thank you enough for your time and uh, I mean what I said. I'm really hoping I'll get to come and see you in action sometime soon. Oh well, thanks so much for for having me on. I'll be listening into the other podcasts as well and thank you. Thank you so much, Roy. Cheers, no problem. That's all for today, but thank you very much for listening. And if you enjoyed that, please do hit the subscribe or follow button so you keep up to date with new episodes. And we look forward to welcoming you back to my tennis journey very soon.